The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 23rd, 2022. Throughout this week, tensions between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO have been building. This week alone, Russia has increased the count of its troops along the Ukrainian border and began slowly evacuating citizens from its embassy. Additionally, Microsoft has discovered destructive malware on multiple Ukrainian government and private sector computers. The discovery of the malware coincides with a cyber attack that hacked the websites of Ukrainian government agencies last week for which Ukrainian officials believe Russia is to blame. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from April 2015, in which Fiona Hill, a senior fellow and director of the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings, tackles the hard questions about Putin. Who exactly is he? What does he want? And how should the West respond to Russian aggression based on what we know about its leader? I'm Cody Poplin, and this is a Lawfare Podcast, April 4th, 2015. That was Fiona Hill you just heard, co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and a senior fellow at Brookings. With a tenuous ceasefire holding in Ukraine, we asked Fiona onto the show to discuss the man behind the unrest, Vladimir Putin. Who is he? What does he want? And what shapes his policy decisions and how he views the outside world? Is, as some have charged, Putin an unhinged madman obsessed with personal appearances? Or is he a shrewd realist with a nuanced understanding of the geopolitical challenges his country faces? Fiona tackles this and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 117, Who is Vladimir Putin? So, who the hell is this Vladimir Putin guy? Well, Vladimir Putin is somebody who has spent an awful lot of time trying to conceal uh, many of the elements of his, uh, his biography. So that makes uh, determining who Vladimir Putin is actually really quite difficult. You know, for somebody who's been in the public spotlight and really in the public spotlight for the last uh, 15 years in uh, so many different ways and so many different guises, you know, Putin, of course, revels in this sort of macho action hero uh, playing the president or the president playing an action hero kind of image uh, that he has in the Russian context. At the same time, we know very little, uh, including um, m- new information about uh, biographical details of even the time that he's in office, about his whole uh, background. For example, you know, we didn't really know what was going on with his marriage uh, to his wife, Ludmilla, 
until he basically announced, uh, or she announced with him, that they were getting divorced a year or so ago. She disappeared completely from the spotlight, no information on her whatsoever, in spite of the fact that technically she was the first lady of Russia. His two daughters, most people uh, spending all of their time trying to figure out <clears throat> where they are, who are they married to, there's all kinds of rumours. No one's seen a recent picture of them um, in, uh, in years. The last uh, sighting of them that was verifiable was when they were children. Even just basic facts of his, his family life as a child, as a, as a young adult, the people that he's kind of close to, the things that he did when he was in the KGB, all of that is uh, somewhat obscure. And every time you get a piece of information, there's a whole sense of disinformation. So on the one front, Vladimir Putin is somebody who plays multiple roles. He is a person who hides you know, his true identity, plays multiple roles in the guise of president, uh, but certainly has uh, some things that we can kind of say about him that we know, for example, that he was in the KGB for a long period of time. He tends to think like an operative and act like an operative uh, in that uh, sort of sense of somebody who's come up through the rank and file in the back corridors of an intelligence service. But then he's also, you know, someone who we know has been a public figure and the president and prime minister of uh, Russia trading off those uh, places now. Uh, for the best part of the last uh, 15 years. But getting to grips of who is Putin, what makes him tick, what drives him, what motivates him, is much more of a complicated issue, which is why you know, Cliff Gaddy and I wrote this book. So when he came to power initially, a lot of people in the West regarded him as you know, a potential significant improvement over his predecessor. Now the conversation is really about, is he crazy? What's he trying to do? Um, is he, you know, what are his strategic objectives? Is he a rational actor, etc.? cetera? Um, has he changed or has he always been more or less the same character and it's really the understanding of him that's changed? I think there's a bit of, of all of those aspects there. I think it's like anybody. I mean, do, do, do all of us, you know, stay constant over time? Most people do not. I mean, they adapt and they change as circumstances change or as they evolve, you know, through their lives and, uh, and their careers. But some fundamental basic elements of people's characters do remain so, uh, unchanged. Some of them become more enhanced or sharpened over time. And I think you can say that about Vladimir Putin. What's interesting is when he first came to office in 99, 2000, first becoming prime minister and then being designated as the acting president before they kind of ran him as a, <coughs> an official candidate to become uh, the president in 2000, there was an awful lot of activity around shaping an image of him. Uh, this was his, one of his first major forays into the media world, which now, of course, is very much shaped by the Kremlin. But the people around him were presenting him to the Russian people as a relative unknown. I mean, he'd, he'd had a very meteoric and very sudden rise to prominence after first coming to Moscow in 1996. He'd been a deputy mayor of uh, St. Petersburg. People knew very little about him. He was appointed to a series of positions inside the Kremlin. He becomes the director of the FSB, the uh, successor agency to the KGB for a brief period. Then he becomes a, a deputy prime minister. All of this happens very, very quickly in a period from about sort of 1998 through to 1999, 2000. So they, st they have to kind of craft an image of him. And there's certain um, aspects of his character that are presented there. Now, the question, of course, is are these the aspects that they just wanted to highlight? Are some of these really true and genuine? But over time, I think you can actually trace uh, the way that these, uh, these evolve. So what are they? He presents himself, you know, first of all, as 
very much the antithesis, as you were kind of suggesting um, uh, in the initial question, to uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was, you know, somewhat kind of mercurial, a bit of a maverick. Uh, there's, of course, all the, the, the information that we know about Yeltsin being in quite poor health, especially by the time of the end of his presidency. I mean, he'd gone through open heart surgery. He, he was, uh, had a bit too much of a fondness for alcohol. He could so be quite Putin unpredictable. Putin is was steady. That's right, he's steady. And he's, he's in sober. physically fit. He's in fantastic physical shape. Not only is he somebody who has excelled at martial arts, but there's all kinds of stories about him and stories he tells about himself just to show his physical prowess. He also uh, comes into uh, prominence against the backdrop of the outbreak of war in Chechnya again. Yeltsin had famously mishandled the, uh, the, the um, conflict with Chechnya. It had gone from being a political conflict in the early 1990s when Chechnya seceded from the Russian Federation, or at least declared that they had seceded, to becoming a full-scale war and a devastating war, the biggest military campaign on Russian territory since World War II, and the Russian military got its butt kicked, basically by the Chechens. And essentially, Yeltsin had to sue for peace in the late 1990s. Putin comes back in as that war breaks out again, and everything about the image that is crafted about him shows that he's going to be a scrappy fighter who will never back down and who will not be intimidated and will do whatever is necessary to win. So there's lots of stories about him being a street fighter as a little kid and as a teenager, about the martial arts, about uh, being extraordinarily proficient in judo. This is actually uh, one of the things that is verifiable about uh, Putin in his late teens and into his um, early periods in college. He was very good at judo. He's a black belt. He trained with a judo team. Many of the people who are close to him now come from that kind of milieu of training with him in St. Petersburg. And everything is emphasizing that Putin is a tough guy, that he's got this uh, ability to stick it out. Now, even if he might look like the underdog, he's physically uh, on the smaller side. He doesn't look like, you know, some big imposing guy. Yeltsin was a big, gruff, you know, kind of swashbuckling kind of character. But Putin is, you know, wiry, stealthy. He's somebody who can leverage other people's strengths against them and turn them into weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And all of those images are set. And as we fast forward to today in the conduct of the war with Ukraine, those kind of images have come to the fore even more. Even early on in these biographical um, uh, materials, these interviews that Putin did as he goes into the presidency with Russian journalists, he also stresses the fact that he has a low tolerance for risk. There's all these stories about Putin being uh, analysed within the confines of the KGB, you know, these psychological profiles. It's only the stories come from him, it has to be said, and some people that he carefully selected to be interviewed uh, for um, these articles earlier in his presidency. The talk about his, lower, uh, 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 his, his high tolerance, I'd say, for risk, his lowered sort of sense um, of, of danger. And Putin himself makes a big, uh, a big deal about this. But really, that comes across more as a very calculated uh, set of stories. It's, it's like playing the madman theory that uh, Richard Nixon uh, famously devised along with uh, Henry Kissinger and others around him in the White House when they were dealing with the issue of North Korea. Everybody wanted to depict Nixon as being somewhat unpredictable, someone who could be quick to anger and might even fly off to the point of provoking a nuclear war with North Korea. And Putin likes to create that same kind of image. The very final scene in this uh, semi-autobiographical book that was published out of these articles that produced at the beginning of his presidency has Putin driving along with his judo instructor in a car and reaching out of the window, and he's in the driver's seat, to pluck a piece of uh, straw 
or hay from a passing truck. And as a result of leaning out the window, he, you know, kind of loses control of the car and they careen off across the road and almost, you know, kind of uh, ends really badly in a big accident. But somehow at the last minute, you know, Putin manages to sort of save it. And his instructor turns around, you know, basically to him, what the hell, what was that about? Why did you do that? And Putin says, well, you know, kind of in his musing at the end of uh, this scene, I probably did it because the, you know, the hair smelled good. And so Putin wants to leave you with that image of somebody who will take these risks, who will do something just for the heck of it. Something, you know, kind of uh, intemperate, something wild, something potentially dangerous. But at the same time, it's carefully calculated because it's, this is a story that comes from him. Right. It's and an how, image that he wants to leave us with. And how much of it do you buy? Or is he in fact, uh, is it in fact merely a calculated self-presentation that helps him, you know, achieve certain strategic goals? Or is it basically uh, a, 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 a correct self-presentation of a vision of himself that he enjoys? Well, I think it's certainly a vision of himself that he enjoys. And I think over time, when you start to think about these issues, people create these images for themselves that often they start to try to live up to. So Putin has crafted an image about himself as the sort of the master spy, although in actual fact, as much as we can verify about his career in the KGB, it wasn't all that auspicious. Although there's certainly lessons that he's taken away from that he has applied very effectively uh, during the time that he's been in office at the head of, uh, as his head of state in Russia. He talks about two skills that he learned in the KGB, working with people, which often can mean a sense of manipulating them and exploiting their vulnerabilities to, ter- to recruit them, to turn them into assets, and to make sure that they're not liabilities. You know, figuring out how you turn someone or how you use someone or how you get someone to do something that they wouldn't normally do. And the second is working with large amounts of information. And one thing that I can say from being in the presence of Putin in um, small groups and listening to him for, in some cases, hours, is he really is on top of his game when it comes to processing information on a whole wide variety of subjects. Putin clearly is someone who can synthesize an awful lot of information and deploy that, certainly in uh, one-on-one type of situations. And you see that over and over again in very highly orchestrated settings where Putin will parry in fields. It's almost like sparring with um, boxing uh, partners uh, in a verbal sense with the, with the media, with uh, you know, selected experts, with a sort of selected group. It's without it's, notes. It's not staged. It's, 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 the settings are staged, but the back and forth is not so much staged. He knows some of the questions in advance. Sometimes he doesn't, but he's just very good at processing information, shooting things right back at uh, people again. So those elements um, of his biography seem quite clear. He targets individuals, he targets individual leaders. You know, there's all the stories about, you know, the way that he interacted first with uh, President Bush, uh, George W. Bush. And, you know, when Bush, of course, looked into Putin's eyes. Gave him his eyes to look into. But it was Putin himself was also looking into Bush's eyes and trying to figure out how do I engage with this guy? How do I turn, you know, parts of his biography into uh, something that I can use? And he did that quite effectively, which, you know, Bush himself and many others have admitted. He also tried to intimidate Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. It's now a pretty well-known story about how he knew that she was quite frightened of dogs, having been attacked by a dog in the 1990s. So the first thing that he does in a one-on-one meeting is allow his very large black Labrador to kind of come into the room to sniff around 
the chancellor's feet and to basically kind of position uh, herself, the dog, you know, next to the next to the chancellor, which um, you know, of course, was meant to intimidate and just to try to see how the chancellor would react. He's always trying to kind of gauge what this is about people. So that's not something that's just part of the self-image. But then this macho aspect, this playing the fighter pilot, the fireman, the race car driver, the uh, ice hockey uh, player, in right. addition to being the judo, that is all kind of part of an act, but he tries to live up to it. So what's interesting about this is when you can go around and ask people to verify uh, certain um, parts of you know, the sort of Putin story. In the case of ice hockey, Putin didn't know how to skate. So he sought out a very famous... Uh, Russian um, ice hockey uh, player and coach and asked him to teach him to um, to skate so that he could play ice hockey because it's a big combat, you know, matcha sport in, in Russia as much as it is in the United States and Canada. So Putin wanted to be proficient. So each time that he does one of these stage stunts and they're very stage, he admits it, sometimes he comes up with them, he does his homework. He doesn't just, you know, kind of appear and, you know, sort of sit in a tank. He does all of his homework to you know, know what's going on here. So he kind of rises to the occasion. He role plays, but he does it with a certain degree of skill. And how much of it is for his public imaging purposes and how much of it is self-imaging? Well, I think that's always one of those things that psychologists would find very hard to pass because once you start to get into that role and you are the stage persona, you often live up to it as well. I mean, we know that from so many different settings. But it all, in the first sense, is all about public imaging. So when it's, it's, it's meant to create connections with uh, very clearly defined parts of his constituent base inside of Russia, and also to a kind of appeal across Russia to all kinds of uh, different groups to show them a degree of respect and to engage with them and to basically get them to support and to uh, basically validate not just his own image and his presidency, but many of the policies that he's uh, trying to affect. So when he undertakes something like what has happened in Ukraine over the last 18 months, should we understand it as reflecting, as some people say, some sort of grand strategic objective to sort of bring the near abroad back uh, clearly into the Russian sphere of influence to unite all Russian speakers under uh, Russian uh, rule, or and it's something he's willing, as you say, to take great risk. It's like driving by the hay, um, but it all works out okay because that's, from his point of view, that's um, the style of leader he is. Or should we understand it rather as a reckless, impulsive thing? He took uh, a country that was in a relatively strong place in the world 18 months ago. Now he's got sanctions. He's got a, a large degree of international isolation. You know, how should we understand the Ukraine uh, gambit or whatever it is relative to this psychology you're describing? Well, it's certainly a calculated gambit, and it's driven by threat perceptions and Putin's um, instincts uh, at survival. And let me just explain that somewhat. Putin, when he came into office, in presenting himself as being the sort of the antithesis of uh, Boris Yeltsin, his predecessor, said that he was going to restore Russia's position as a great power. And that would require getting Russia's act together domestically, 
putting you know the power back into the central state and re regaining and recouping and regathering all of the uh, different authorities over fiscal and uh, other uh, policies that had been devolved out to the Russia's regions. I mean, the Russian Federation was just basically in a state of dissolution at that particular point when Putin came in in 1999-2000. So he, he creates a kind of a vertical of power and brings everything back into the centre, very strongly centralised power. And then that's projected onto the foreign policy scene over a period of time by really trying to assert Russia's position. Putin has said on many speeches he wants to make sure that there is geopolitical and geoeconomic demand for Russia, so that Russia is one of the great players again, not just some second, you know, rate power. He often says, and people around him often say, Russia's not going to be a second Poland, and they obviously mean that as an insult to Poland. They're not going to be a second-tier country. They're not necessarily going to be a Brazil or a Indonesia or a Turkey. They want to be there with the big boys, and that's kind of the way that they think about this. Putin's view is that there are only a handful of truly sovereign, unique civilization-based states in the world. China is obviously one of them under current circumstances, although Russians would never have admitted that, you know, say 15 years ago, they wouldn't have seen China in that position. I think nobody would have done because of China's rather dramatic rise. The United States is in that kind of position, although Russia doesn't see the United States as a unique civilization in any way. It's the melting pot state. It's a bit of the antithesis to what uh, Putin is projecting Russia as being. And so Russia is one of maybe three at best is he Maybe a even smaller. I mean, you're he, just you're just you're describing a somewhat racial vision of the world, or if not racial, then sort of civilizational. Is does he think in in those terms? Putin's quite complex in this regard because he's not averse to using, uh, you know, kind of, uh, race or any kind of issue like this, religion, you know, ethnicity, nationalism is an instrument, just like he'll use the law as an instrument. But I don't think there's any particular evidence that he himself is, you know, particularly racist, sexist, homophobic. All, all, all of these for him uh, instruments. He's very cynical. Mm -hmm. He will use anything if this kind of pushes forward Russia's position. So he's kind of a he's indiscriminate in his discrimination, <laughs> if uh, one can kind of put it in that way. Because for him, it's all instrumental. It's all a tool to push Russia forward. So this is kind of basically what he's been trying to do, it's protect Russia's position. And Ukraine going in a different direction would be a massive threat to Russia's position as a unique, in his view, and the view of many around him, civilization, a unique state that is the leader of the Slavic Russian-speaking world, which Russia uh, sees that it has forged over time in his depiction, in his narrative of history, and that his, the narrative of history of those around him with Ukraine as an intrinsical part of it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Now back up and explain why Ukraine is a threat to that vision. I look at Ukraine and I see a sprawling, dysfunctional, uh, semi-failed state um, that has never managed to really enter the post-Soviet era. It's never been able to uh, you know, pay its bills, employ its people. Uh, I don't look at it as a threat to anything. Well, as far as Putin, and again, many around him are concerned, I just want to stress here that Putin is emblematic of a larger, a far larger cohort of people who think in very similar ways. Today's Russia is the inheritor of the Russian Empire, but also of the vast space of the Soviet Union. And in that context, in the narrative that they have spun that justifies Russia's position in the world as a great global power, not just as a regional player, the vast territory that was uh, conquered over several centuries by uh, Russia, that became part of the Russian Empire, is a very important pillar of Russia's contemporary position. In most Russians' view, Russia is a country with a great imperial uh, past that has never disappeared from the world stage. China would be another, although you know, China's borders have obviously shrunken and enlarged in a similar way. I mean, a lot of Chinese territory today actually happens to be in Russian's territory in the, in the Russian Far East. And we know that China has a you know, very similar perspective of being the Middle Kingdom that has sort of stayed there in some form since, you know, for, for several millennium. And that's kind of the, the Russia's view as well. Russia has actually been very successful in terms of an imperial power that has never quite disappeared. Austro-Hungary has gone, uh, you know, Germany has been carved up over time and has come back together. The Russian Empire, um, you know, has persisted where the British Empire, the sun set on it a long time ago, and other, you know, great Ottoman Empire, right. Persian Empire, those have all disappeared, but Russia is still there. And Ukraine is part of that, the territory of Ukraine. Ukraine, the very name, comes from the borderland. It's the cry, the edge, the outer edges of the Russian Empire. And, of course, the borders of different points encompass large parts of what is today modern Poland, the Baltic states. Finland was part of that Russian Empire. You know, at different points, uh, other empires. The Swedes had an empire that could encroach down to some of this territory. It wasn't the Ottomans. You know, the Persians at different points. But in the, in the Russian narrative, there is a permanence of Russia the state. And Ukraine is intrinsic to this least certain large swathes of Ukrainian territory. One of the great battles that really cemented Russia as a European empire was under Peter the Great, the Battle of Poltava in 1709. That was fought against the, the armies of Sweden. And that was really what put Russia on the European map under Peter the Great. Lots of the territories of Ukraine was conquered by another of the great leaders of Russia, Catherine the Great. So Putin basically is crafting a continuation of the Russian state on the basis of these imperial conquests. Ukrainian <coughs> territory was settled over uh, long periods of time also by Russian speakers, by Orthodox Slavs who predominantly spoke Russian, not just uh, Ukrainian speakers. Right. So this kind of narrative all meshes into one. 
And progressively over the last several years, as Putin has come back to consolidate his third attempt at the presidency, he started to weave a narrative of a kind of a conservative Russia upholding the values of great civilization, the real true values of a Europe. And Ukraine has become part of that narrative. It's become the cradle of Russian civilization in a way that, you know, it wasn't really under, uh, under uh, earlier Putin presidencies or even prime ministerships and was not uh, really picked up on by Boris Yeltsin and others. But has always been a staple of nationalist thinkers in, in Russia, people who have always tried to sort of justif- just justify the continuation of rule by a sort of central Russian authority over this, this vast space. Ukraine has become, as Putin actually uh, said uh, not too long ago, the Temple Mount, Crimea uh, in particular, has been the kind of cradle of this newly narrativized Russian civilization with the Russian Orthodox Church at the center of it. Crimea, by repute, uh, in a certain, a certain of legend, uh, is the place where Grand Prince Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's uh, namesake, uh, was uh, Christianized, was baptized. So, so again, a- this is all a weaved narrative. And in many respects, it's instrumentalized history. Putin so you- has deliberately you know, produced a new narrative to justify the legitimacy of the current Russian state that weaves all of these things together, which makes the idea then of Ukraine deciding that it doesn't want to be part of this narrative. And Very many parts of uh, Ukraine wanting to go off in a different direction, extraordinarily threatening. It's also threatening from an economic point of view and a much more practical, you know, beyond this kind of meta-narrative perspective. Because as Putin came back into the presidency in 2012, the Russian economy was looking at hard times ahead, irrespective of everything that's happened with sanctions and oil prices. It was running out of steam. The people in uh, Putin's inner circle, who were the real experts on uh, the economy, and they really are some extraordinarily competent economists in Russia, were already predicting that over the next several years, from 2012 onwards, Russia's growth was going to stall. They'd kind of run out of the various engines and drivers of economic growth, and they were going to have to put the Russian economy onto a different footing. And part of that idea was to create a sort of protectionist belt around Russia, bringing back in as much as possible the other former states of the Soviet Union that were still very closely tied to the Russian economy. And Ukraine was obviously the most important of these. It's the largest uh, regional economy. There's still incredibly tight links uh, between Ukrainian industry and the defense sector, manufacturing sectors, and Russian industry. And so, um, obviously, the idea was that Ukraine would be an intrinsic part of a new Eurasian Union with Russia at its center. So the idea that Ukraine also would flirt with joining an association agreement with the EU and then sort of rejecting uh, a model uh, that uh, Moscow was promoting was also deeply threatening. So there are all kinds of different ways in which it was seen as threatening. And also, you know, Russians have tended to believe that the incursions, in their view, of NATO and the EU institutionally, politically, economically, culturally, into that space is also deeply threatening because it provides a counter-narrative. It provides a different vision for the future. What Putin is basing his vision of the future on is a reinterpretation of the past, a past where Russia is at the centre of a kind of Eastern Europe, um, a a union of Eastern European states, uh, with Moscow very much firmly at the centre, that is really kind of being the guiding factor in terms of politics, culture, uh, language, um, politics, security, you know, you name it, and the economy. So you mentioned earlier tantalizing fact <coughs> to our listenership that Putin has a very instrumental view of the law. He's behaved unusually for a dictator with respect to 
legalisms. He stepped down from the presidency in conformity with his constitution. He um, has tended, rather than simply lock people up, to develop real criminal cases against them. Um, he's seemed to observe the formalities of uh, democratic processes, even while ripping apart Russian democracy. Yet you described somebody who's a daring risk taker, tough guy, um, uh, conservative with a vision of empire, right? Why is he fixated on these sort of illusions of legal compliance? This also is rooted in uh, some of the narratives about history and really the continuation with going back to the Russian Empire. In the late imperial period, there was a movement uh, among um, a whole host of Russian conservative legal scholars to turn Russia into a conservative uh, version of a constitutional monarchy, to preserve the empire, to preserve the state. Putin is all about preserving the state and putting the state uppermost, and there has to be a certain legal basis for that. In the days of the Tsar, there was a certain kind of divine right of uh, the monarchy. You can't, in a modern period, base that on some divine right anymore. So you have to create a secular form of divinity, and that was going to be the constitution. And the 1993 Russian constitution, which Putin's very strong presidency is based on, is, in many respects, the culmination of all of those earlier efforts in the late Tsarist period to create a constitutional monarchy. The people who drafted that constitution which actually included Anatoly Sobchak, Putin's former boss as the mayor of St. Petersburg, but also his former law professor from Leningrad State University, they were all experts on the conservative legal scholars of the late Tsarist period. And they picked up on many of their precepts. And if you talk to the people who helped draft that constitution back in the 1990s, which was presided over by Boris Yeltsin, they really had in mind a, con a constitutional monarchy to make the presidency a very strong presidency that was underpinned by the constitution and not by political parties or by you know, other institutional arrangements. And this is why Vladimir Putin stepped away from the presidency for that period in 2008 to 2012 to preserve the sanctity of the Russian constitution. It's the divine secular basis of a very strong Russian presidency, which is not rooted in the political parties, not rooted in the parliament, is rooted only in the in the documentary basis of the, uh, on the legality of the Russian constitution, and then the popular acclaim of the people. It's uh, very much a kind of a charismatic uh, presidency that is based on popular appeal. That's elect, why they take elected elected king, elect king, exactly. I mean, it's like those, in fact, it was Poland, interestingly, that had, did have an elected monarchy, you know, back in the day when Poland, you know, was uh, at once whole and... Uh, uh, existing in between the sort of the various Germanic and um, uh, principalities and kingdoms and uh, the, the, the Russian Empire. The Poles very famously had an elected monarch. It was very weak, but in the Russian case, the entire in, intent is to make it, uh, make it very strong. Now, while Putin was out of office, I mean, still in power, but as prime minister, the terms in which uh, the presidency uh, was affected were extended under Dmitry Medvedev as president, from four to six. So now you can uh, basically see a situation in which Vladimir Putin could technically now be president for a full 12 years if he does full uh, uh, two terms of this right. round of the presidency. 
before he has to step away again, which would take us out to 2024. So this is a presidency which is above the fray. No political party basis. And there is no way to uh, basically oust Putin from this presidency other than something that which falls within the purview of the Constitution, which is very hard to, uh, to envisage. All or of which, if he all loses of which makes... all of his uh, popular acclaim. And so law, again, is a, is a very important instrument. And the most important of all of these is the Russian Constitution. <clears throat> all of this makes his disappearing act a few weeks ago for more than 10 days or something uh, puzzling. Um, do we have any insight at this stage into what he was up to? We don't. But, I mean, there's all kinds of different theories, you know, going from infighting, you know, in the uh, inner circle to more um, scurrilous, you know, ideas that he was attending the birth of a love child in Switzerland uh, with, you know, a rumoured mistress that, you know, often kind of, you know, features in the sort of like tabloid, you know, Kevin and Quiverant Press, to the other, you know, more prosaic uh, issue that he could have been incapacitated, sidelined by a nasty um, virus, you know, which I think we can all relate to, you know, but also you know, he wouldn't want to appear in public looking ill and infirm in any way because that, again, undercuts this image because part of going back to everything that we've been discussing about the power of the presidency is the president should appear to be a powerful person. Right. This is where a lot of the rumours, I think, come in about you know, his vast wealth. Yeltsin was famously impoverished as president because the coffers of the Kremlin had run dry by the mismanagement of the economy. He was in terrible health. He'd had open-heart surgery in, in between his two electoral cycles and his um, sec- uh, second run of the presidency in 1996. He you know, couldn't contain him his um, predilections for alcohol and was notoriously drunk in public occasions. He was seen to shame the state repeatedly and he couldn't get a grip on the internal politics. So Putin and so never, Putin has to wants. show no kind of weakness in any way uh, on this. So, you know, if he disappears for a period of time, the simplest explanation could be that he wasn't looking at his best. Yeah. And he, he wasn't, you know, able to, you know, fully function in the vigorous way that uh, one expects of him. And he also is going to have to, at some point, migrate his public image. He can't keep playing the action hero endlessly. I mean, we've got all kinds of people out there in the US, um, in Hollywood, from Liam Neeson to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and uh, all kinds of, you know, different, um, uh, you know, figures of various ages. I mean, Clint Eastwood in his 80s, you know, still playing action heroes. But Putin has got to be able to pull this off uh, to fit in with the image uh, that he has created. It's part of his charismatic presidency. It's part of the reason that he he plays so well um, in Russian public opinion. So Russian public loves this. So they love to see him outmaneuvering everybody and appearing tough. So bringing it all together, if you're a policymaker trying to understand what you can reasonably expect of him over the next six to eight months or year, how does all of this understanding of his uh, personality and psychology make you expect him to behave uh, as, as the current, you know, Ukraine on the one hand, Iran, Syria, you know, all of these crises in which uh, Russia is playing either a direct or indirect or a, a role either cooperative with the United States or antagonistic to it. Putin tailors his approach uh, to uh, all of these issues. And depending on 
um, what he sees in Russia's interests. So everything is about Russia's interests first and foremost. He's never going to do anybody any favors. And he's always going to be kind of thinking uh, in an opportunistic uh, fashion as to whether a particular set of circumstances will move Russia forward or will be in some way damaging to Russia. So although he's got this kind of broader uh, goal of maximizing Russia's position and putting Russia in the best possible position, he will take any opportunity that comes along. So there's a certain large amount of tactical maneuvering that's going on in, uh, in, in Putin's case. He's always looking for an opportunity to sort of step in and to take advantage of a situation. So an awful lot of things depend on what we do and how we react to things. In the cases of Iran, for example, Putin uh, wants to make sure that Russia has a seat at that table. That's the big kahuna in terms of the international diplomacy right now, along with Syria and other aspects of the Middle East. And Putin wants to make sure that Russia has a seat at the table. Russia can stop things that may be uh, negative to its interests. And also that Russia is acknowledged as still being one of the big players in the UN and the Security Council. He's not going to give that up. So they're not going to just play the spoiler just to kind of get one over the United States on this issue because they have to sort of rise to the big international stage and to be seen to be one of the peacemakers, the big negotiators, not just one of the you know, kind of craters of mayhem on the other front. Syria, the situation's a bit more complex. Putin doesn't want to see Assad overthrown and um, he's quite prepared to uh, basically wait this out until there's some kind of outcome in Syria that would suit Russia's interests. That would be probably very similar to what we saw in the case of Egypt. They've been delighted at the, uh, at the advent of Sisi. They were not very happy with the Muslim Brotherhood. They were extraordinarily perplexed and unhappy by the overthrow of Mubarak, who was as much seen as an ally to Russia as they were perceived as, as he was being perceived as being an ally hmm. uh, to the United States. They couldn't understand at all why the, the United States would jettison their guy um, in, in Egypt. And they're much more comfortable with having a tough guy in place of Sisi that they can deal with, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. So Putin would like to see probably some kind of similar outcome in Syria where there's someone who can basically knock heads together and, uh, you know, basically create some kind of semblance of order, no matter how crude that might be in the Syrian case. But when it comes to Ukraine, Putin does not want Ukraine to be any kind of success story. He doesn't want uh, the EU and the US to succeed in... You know, putting Ukraine back together again. But they're not really sure, I think, what they want as the final outcome in Ukraine. And that's the kind of the danger that we have there. They will take advantage of any opportunity to undermine anything that we're trying to do in terms of kind of making a success out of Ukrainian politics or the economy, which is going to be hard to do in any case. And always trying to kind of block and to thwart any kind of initiative that might move Ukraine in another direction. They're trying to leverage you know, whatever the situation is on the ground and take advantage of anything to sort of push forward any kind of Russian position. And it doesn't have to be in a military sense. Putin doesn't want a full-blown conventional war there. And he's certainly saber-rattling with the nuclear arsenal to warn us, however, that he might take the calculated risk getting back to, you know, kind of where we started off from, that he would, if he, if he makes a threat, he's going to be prepared to make good on it. That's the whole part of the narrative about Putin in Chechnya and elsewhere. He threatened a war with Georgia, and he came through with a war on Georgia, even though he was nominally behind the scenes as prime minister in 2008. And he made it very clear to the Georgians that if they overstepped the line, there would be consequences. And he made those consequences clear. And that's what he's doing with Ukraine. You guys have stepped over a line. You're going in a direction I don't like. And I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, to make sure you don't succeed. But it's also beyond the military aspects of this. It could be economic. 
you know, again, making sure that Ukraine can never pay off its bills, can never get a restructuring of its debt, that the IMF program will always founder and that Ukraine will never move forward. It can be political, playing in terms of Ukrainian internal politics, taking advantage of their infighting to discredit them, to undermine Poroshenko or to recruit Poroshenko to kind of a more of a pro-Moscow position, basically to make sure that Poroshenko thinks, lives, breathes Moscow. What is it that Putin wants? And also to keep everybody constantly guessing. Putin will never let us know. Uh, he will never show his hand. That's our big dilemma. We show our hand all the time. And, you know, we, we're, we're playing poker with a guy who's mastered the poker face and who's going to keep his cards very close to his chest and will take advantage of any mistake that we make. And he's looking at our hand the entire time. Because even if you can't see it directly, he's trying to pick off, you know, various people around Europe and, you know, kind of create his own coalitions and alliances through U.S. business and, you know, every other you know, imaginable avenue that he can to figure out what it is that we're going to do. And, you know, we lay out red lines, we say about what we're not going to do, and Putin takes advantage of all of the situations. So the lessons for us, we have to be very careful about dealing with Putin, to understand that he will take calculated risks, that he can be ruthless, he's going to be just a shameless opportunist. He is going to kind of manipulate every situation as much as he can to his advantage. And he's going to take his cue a lot from what we do and what we don't do. And so we're going to have to, in ourselves, if we have to deal with this, decide very firmly about what it is that we want to achieve, what goals we have. We have to be realistic. It's going to be very, very difficult to create any semblance of a success in Ukraine. And we're going to have to really stick together on unity. We're going to have to really focus on that because Putin is going to look for every division, every vulnerability and every weakness that he can exploit. And overall, it's a Russia-first policy. And it's become very much term tied now to Putin's own regime and... Um, his own personal survival, because he is now staked an awful lot by spinning these narratives about Russian history, you know, the justification for the modern Russian state based on this long tradition going back to the empire and stretching through the Soviet Union to what happens in Ukraine. He's made Ukraine as much of now of a pillar of his policy, domestic and foreign policy, as oil and gas are the pillars of his economy. Fiona, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast on your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.